Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Coffee Podcast, your weekly blend of motivation, encouragement, education, and insights into all things medicine for junior doctors and medical students in South Africa. Welcome to episode 15. In this week's Coffee with Consultants feature, I share the wonderful conversation I had with Professor Shastra Bura, a specialist in obstetrics and critical care at Charlotte McLeaker Johannesburg Academic Hospital. I learned that working in an ICU is not a specialty on its own, but rather requires you to have done some advanced training in specializing in another area in medicine beforehand. That is, in order to specialize in critical care in South Africa, you first need to go through one of anesthetics, emergency medicine, internal medicine, obzingani, or surgery. And you'll notice that I listed those in alphabetical order so as not to show favoritism to anyone in particular. In addition, Prof. Bura shared some wonderful insights into the delicate balance between following an algorithm developed to enhance patient outcomes and the need for excellent clinical skill and wisdom to know when a decision algorithm needs to be adjusted or even rejected in some cases. I hope you enjoy this episode and get a lot of wisdom and insight from it. Without further ado, here is Professor Shastra Bura. Welcome to the Dr. Coffee Podcast, Professor Shastra Bura. Hi, Simon. Really honored to be here. Thank you so much. So hello everyone. I'm really uh, honored to be part of the young group as a lot of people refer to me as being the oldie. Um, and essentially my name is Shastra. I studied uh, medicine to become a pediatrician and that I did at Wits University. Subsequently as a medical student realized that pediatrics was essentially extremely hard sore to watch children suffer and went on to do my internship at Pochepston Hospital, which was amazing because we got to see the ocean. Really, really became into my own, specifically uh, in the surgery department and in the maternity department. And because there were so few of us, there were only five interns at the time, um, we used to actually challenge each other in terms of seeing who would do the fastest Caesar. So it was a lot of fun because at that stage, it was essentially see one, do one, teach one. And so you were thrown into the deep end very early on, but it was fantastic from empowering myself with surgical skills, from being um, the expectation of looking after patients by myself, being able to make my own assessments, management plans, and then having the supervision to be able to discuss it with the senior medical officer, because there were also very few consultants at the time. Um, I know a lot has changed since being a regional hospital, you know, there's a lot more infrastructure. So I won't tell you how old I am, but this was many years ago. I subsequently then went to do my community service uh, very far away in a very small town called Metsimoholo. Okay. Which is just outside of the Val, and it essentially was one huge corridor. And um, I'm not sure what it was exactly from a maternity perspective, but I remember being asked to cover the uh, HOD, the head of department, on my first Saturday call. And so I had asked, okay, what would, it, what would I need to do? And he was like, you'd be need to look after the maternity division. And if any patient needed to go to theater, you'd need to do the cesarean section. And this was my first week as a community service doctor. And I thought to myself, sure, that sounds like a huge task. And I did it. Um, if I go through all the regulations now, I know I should not have been the one putting in the spinal and then wow. doing the uh, cesarean section. Wow. But back in the day, that was the expectation because yeah. of the service delivery that you know you needed to offer. 
And so by default, I became one of the main uh, operating surgeons in for general surgery with the appendicectomies, tonsillectomies. I had a beautiful senior medical officer who I think realized I had a niche for surgery. And so he taught me already in my commserve years how to do a hysterectomy and oh, appendicectomy. Wow. We did amputations. Um, and I remember the one time everyone came to theater to watch me do a circumcision because my previous one um, was a bit uh, traumatizing for me. Um, but essentially, I gained a lot of skill in my commserve years. And that's when I realized I actually really enjoyed doing obstetrics. I enjoyed doing emergency medicine and mm. I enjoyed participating in surgery. Didn't yeah. really enjoy internal medicine so much because whenever you walked into the ward, there were at least eight files that you'd need to certify. And uh, at that time, I think a lot of ARVs and TB therapy weren't as user-friendly and easy as it is now. So we lost a lot of patients back then. Um, and so that discipline for me wasn't something that I, I, I was really passionate about. It's so interesting that even though you were facing really stressful situations in surgery, and in surgery, you know, carrying the responsibility of those cases, it was that element of internal medicine that you were like, nope, I'm not interested in that. So I wouldn't say I wasn't interested. I think if I had more uh, resources at the time, you know, um, it, it maybe would have been a better experience. But I think walking into a ward and as the intern or the commissar being handed like eight files and then you're yeah. like, what am I doing with these? And the sister was like, they need to be certified. These are the patients that died last night. Sure. And, uh, you know, for me, that was just, it's, it becomes very depressing. And I think we all forget that we're human and that human suffering and that death and dying and trauma and uh, you know all of those elements I, they do take a toll on you eventually and they chip away slowly and slowly and I can confidently now look back over the 20 years that I've been busy in medicine mm. to be able to identify what experiences have molded me into the doctor I am today and have also been able to mature through the process to realize that this is not my entire life, but it's my profession. And in my profession, I am passionate about it. So I think that's important. I think we all start as junior doctors wanting to save the world. And it was only this year, really, you know, um, there's a new term and I didn't even know it had a DSM-4 criteria or existed. But besides the burnout aspect, it's actually called compassion fatigue. Yeah. And the compassion fatigue is when you look around at every instance where you are trying your absolute best to make the biggest difference and you fail. And so you start becoming inadequate. You look around the resources around you and you realize you are so isolated and you are so alone because no one understands what it is you trying to achieve. And so that goes to telling you how I evolved with the rest of my career. And so I did my community service and I really enjoyed uh, doing obstetrics. Um, and from there I went on to do, I locumed in a few private GP practices until I decided what I wanted to study. And subsequently from there I got married to the man of my dreams. Okay. So he's, the, he's a massive pillar of strength in my life. And I think being where I am today is because I've had such enormous support from oh. him being my partner not just through marriage, but my partner in life, because we, we make a really great team. And I think that's very important to associate yourself with people who actually know you and know where your passions lies, know what you thrive on and be able to there to support you. Because it's not easy being involved with a medical practitioner. I think whatever field you eventually get into, it's difficult. 
whether it's family medicine, if you're just laying back and being a GP, you've got to be on call 24-7 for the people who have that expectation of you. And so I think everything is extremely challenging and draining and trying to get a balance in life, I think, is our biggest challenge. It's not about being the best in what you do. It's about having the best life with what you do. Um, so I then got an opportunity soon after I was married to go and work in Ireland, which was really nice. And so I left and I worked in Ireland for a few months, close to a year. My husband and I had the most amazing time because we were able to travel Europe. Um, and so that wasn't a lucrative journey. It was just purely through experience. And I must say it was, I'm so glad that I took the time out after my ComServe years because when we were going to leave Ireland, the question is, what do I do now? And so, um, because we were moving back to Johannesburg, I had sent out my CV and letters of interest to emergency medicine, to general surgery, as well as to obstetrics and gynecology. And the ONG department was the first department that actually sent me a reply. Um, and they offered me an interview two days after I landed back in South Africa. Wow. And I met with the most incredible mentors, really. They were um, an amazing team. Um, and they were all stationed here at Charlotte Matseke. I met with the team. Um, the person in charge of the interviews called the person in charge of the uh, timetable. They showed me how things work. The next thing I knew, I went down to HR and assigned a contract for a medical officer post. The next thing I knew, I was writing my primaries, which I passed. The next thing I knew, I was afforded an interview for a registrar. <laughs> next thing and the next thing I know is I'm standing in front of you so many years later as a professor of matern uh, maternal critical care. Amazing. So uh, it happened very quickly. It was tough. Reg time is not easy for anybody. Yes. Um, I think it's highly uh, um, intense because there's just so much you need to know. And there's so much of expectation that you need to know it. Is it um, harder now or is it easier now? Yeah. Um, I think the workload has definitely tripled. Oh, really? Um, I worked as a consultant uh, at one of the regional hospitals. Um, I was at Rahima Mosa, which I absolutely adored. It really was, I think, the best three to four uh, years of my life. Mm. Um, you know, it was a beautiful community, beautiful patients. It wasn't hard work, but it was good work. Yes. And then I left to study critical care at Steve Biko Academic Hospital, and I returned about uh, three years, three and a half years later. And the volume of patients just enormously exponentially increased. went what's driving, so much higher. What's driving that pressure, that increase? So I'm not quite sure. I'm not sure if it's because so many people have entered the country Okay. seeking help yes I know now if we look at what the government's trying to do in terms of curbing you know the population growth and trying to limit resources to be prioritized for South African citizens I think that could play a huge role there were never elements in maternal care and even in pediatric child care to limit people access to care yeah, sure. and that was the one thing I loved and I enjoyed working in obstetrics because a pregnant mother would never be denied care um, and so I think it is different to answer your question in terms of rich time and support. We never knew what burnout was. That wasn't even a term that anyone entertained. It essentially was you were either that type of personality that would cope or not cope. There was never this uh, cognizant, uh, you know, realization to say that what we are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis for any human being 
is strenuous. Mm. And so I think that, yes, is one great support that burnout has been identified. Uh, it has been, uh, you know, there's categories that you can actually look at criteria to, to try and assist people who need the help. Um, and I think generations have also changed. I mean, in our day, I was old school vets. How, I'm, I'm not from the GEM program, so I'm very old school vets where we had didactic lectures and then everything was at the patient's bedside. But you knew out of the 200 that had started medicine, I remember at our inauguration when we were taking the Hippocratic Oath and the dean said, look to your right, now look to your left. Only one in three of you will pass medicine at wow. the end of six years. And he wasn't far off because we started off with a big class and I think we only ended up graduating just close to two-thirds of the class. And, you know, then it was you had to be the brightest. You had to have had six, seven, eight, ten A's mm. in high school. And I think the approach now is that anyone who's passionate about studying medicine will get that opportunity versus in our era where you had to prove to earn your position. And I think that came with a certain type of maturity and uh, EQ as well as IQ to be able to deal with the profession. Now that people are being afforded the opportunity to do the GEM program, I think we've got to be very cognizant that we're not only working with type A and type B personalities. You know, there's people from different arrays, there are people who can be passionate. I mean, you can be taught anything, really. If you really want to learn the skill in anything, it doesn't matter where your background is. You can be taught with anything. And I think that's important so that we know about, you know, different... Uh, accommodating different types of people in, in the, the medical field. I remember very when the GEM program had started and I was a registrar and then became a young consultant, I had intern doctors and medical officers who were potentially twice my age, huh. you know, because they had come in through the GEM program, yeah. which was great, but not great for them because mm -hmm. there's this kind of cultural, oh, I can't be told what to do by a lady or I've got someone younger who's now I'm reporting to. So there's so many different dynamics. I that dare have... say you helped make them better. <laughs> they, if that was their attitude, they needed to be so, there needed to be some manners learned, first of all, and some correction. <laughs> so, no, I guess so. But like, I mean, I think as I've become older, so I'd rather say wiser, you kind of try and put yourself into everyone else's shoes. I mean... I was talking to someone the other day and my son reminds me all the time about how strict I am, you know. And someone said, are you not scared that he's going to grow up like that, knowing what your, you know, views are, knowing how strict you are, knowing how straight and the narrow you are. And, you know, I didn't realize, like, when I was growing up, my parents were very focused on the fact that I would be intellectual and I would be great. And it was because I grew up in an apartheid, and if I didn't prove myself intellectually, I wouldn't have had opportunities. Come on, yeah. It's sure. not about, you know, having a strict childhood and knowing that Shastra is going to get straight A's for maths and for this and for that. It was the fact that I had been brought up in an environment where my parents were intellectuals, but they were also forced to be because we needed opportunities. And to get opportunities within an apartheid, coming from social economics where, you know, you're Indian, you don't belong to the majority was the fact that you needed to prove yourself and so that's how i've grown up until i've realized that it's not about chasing dreams but it's about actually living them and so yeah. for the first time in my life i can comfortably sit back and say to you i enjoy what i do that's wonderful 
I, I thoroughly enjoyed. And I mean, my priority with going to study critical care after I had done obstetrics and gynecology, number one is I enjoy the challenge. But number two, I realized there was a deficiency. I realized that within the obstetric realm that there were certain skills that we were not expected to know. You know, it was just a knee jerk that if you had a sick patient with this caliber, you'd call for help. And I used to get very frustrated, especially being at Rahima Musa, because the registrars who were in internal medicine and in general surgery and the ICU teams were all across at another hospital. Yeah. And I mean, now I know it's so unsafe to ask people to move around, especially in Johannesburg, especially at night. And I think it was that inadequacy and insecurity in me that said, how do I empower myself? And then it became an aim to say, let me go and empower myself with the skills to be able to come back and teach. I love that you still had that, that recognition or that openness, even as a consultant, to say there's still more to learn. There's still a drive to improve. There's still, and like you said, it came from wanting to be intellectual, wanting to, to prove yourself, you know. But it had positive outcomes for the setting you were in. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming now that the critical care element came in because of what you saw at Rahima Musa. So yes, it was an interest I had had, but also we had had beautiful ICU sisters uh, that we trained at Rahima Mosa. Okay. And I remember a few times them saying, you know, we would love to run an ICU here, but there's no clinician. Oh, and then wow. I said, but why isn't there a clinician? Yeah, and then I was like, okay, let me go do it. And then I can come and help with the ICU. So it was never about wanting to prove myself. It was wanting to empower myself. And I've realized now in doing that, I actually isolated myself. And the reason is, is because what I studied is not understood by the people around me. Okay. So having said that, if, let's just talk about fluid management. Sure. Right? Fluid management is a very skilled uh, prescription. And I didn't know that before I started studying critical care because you actually have to do the pharmacology behind it. You have to understand volume of distribution in different types of people, especially in pregnancy, in the critically ill, and be able to adapt that to every patient you see. Now, if I take that one aspect and if I then try and implement those skills in my setting, which is an obstetric high care, hmm. the next person will not understand why I gave a fluid bolus or why I withdrew not giving a fluid bolus in the next patient. Because I think the generation now, and potentially I think it's been long-standing, everybody wants to be able to follow an algorithm or a protocol to the T. So if it's preeclampsia, the blood pressure is X, the urine output is X, and you gave that patient a fluid bolus, why did you not do it for bed two who's got the same profile? And I'm like, because bed two didn't warrant a fluid bolus because these are her parameters. Yes. but they've got exactly the same disease process. Yes. And I think we need to bring around the rationalization that protocols and guidelines are there as a foundation. But we are not fixing cars and treating machines and patients do not read textbooks. So every guideline and algorithm that you have, the patient needs to be evaluated on their own individual warrant and the guideline must fit the patient, not the patient must fit the guideline. Yes. And so I think because I challenge that often with the knowledge I now know and the skills I've been trained with, um, it becomes very difficult because for generations on end, the same old protocols and the same old guidelines 
have never really evolved. Really? Yeah. And so that's why I say I feel as if I've isolated myself because it's me who is now challenging all of these old schools of thought in everyone who has not had the opportunity to see things through my eyes, which becomes very difficult to manage. If I can uh, take what you're saying and just think in my own context as a junior doctor, I think I don't know what I don't know. You know, there's certainly massive gaps in my knowledge and the algorithm serves to at least supplement that knowledge for where I have gaps, I can follow an algorithm. Somebody like yourself can say, okay, that, that algorithm's good to a point, this is where it ends, and then my experience and my wisdom needs to, to come in. How do we defer to that? How would you like a junior doctor, whether it be a, a, an intern, an MO, how would you like them to interpret that algorithm and your advice at the same time? I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, how do we tap into what you have without it coming across like either we're too weak and too needy or on the other side that we like we question that you it might be interpreted that we're questioning your fluid orders you know yeah so i think that's a twofold yeah. response yeah number one i think as the seniors in a team we owe it to you to make sure that guidelines are updated okay and then protocols are relevant so we owe that to you. We owe to be able to either agree or disagree with the information we get. We use a lot of international bodies. So if I, for instance, take the Royal College of Obs and Gynae or the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, those are set for those settings. So we need to then extract the information that's relevant to our patient in South Africa. What do we have available to us? Mm. You know, How are we going to manage these patients with our resources? So I think for that, we really need to update guidelines and protocols regularly to support our junior teams. The second thing I'm going to say to you, if there's nothing else and anyone listens to this podcast, <laughs> is if you want to know what to do for the best interest of the patient, yes. look, listen, feel. It starts by talking to the patient. It starts by examining the patient. It starts by understanding what is happening in the patient before you can rush and do a blood gas or pull a FBC or book that chest x-ray. And I find a lot of the times the junior doctors are thrown with the page of ward work. The expectation is, I just need to get this done. But there's no understanding around it. And I think you need to embrace your patient as if it's your story as well. And I mean, I loved it. When we worked at Rahima Musa, I looked after a gynae team and we were a team, which meant that every single member in my team knew every patient in our ward. So if I went on a Tuesday morning, I said, Simon, how is Elizabeth in B1? You'd be able to turn around and say, Prof, so much better. Her hemoglobin was nine on Friday. It's up to 11. She had no bleeding over the weekend, this and this and this. And you mentioned that we should consider da, 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 da. And I've initiated Plexane for her today. Well done, Simon. That's excellent. So I think that we isolate ourselves or the profession causes us to focus on one thing instead of being a part of the whole picture. Junior doctors are extremely valuable. I cannot do what I do on the level and the intensity level I do it at if I don't have doctors. I mean, right now, you've heard my phone buzz in the background. <laughs> and that's because the doctors who are currently in high care or the two interns with the medical officer and the registrar each have targets to report to me. 
I haven't left it to the reg to say, I want to know about this and this and this from you. Yeah. Every person has got a role to play. And by that, they feel empowered because they're actually doing something for the patient. Yes. Someone's come back and said, now the HP is six. Uh, what is your feeling? No, I think we should give this X, you know, how have you excluded? So it's so important to be able to do that look, listen, feel. And the reason is because if you understand disease processes, that's all you need to do. And the next time you realize you enhance from the knowledge that you had formed a baseline for, and it just grows and it grows and it grows and you build your confidence. I don't think mind being asked by anyone, how do I do this? If I don't know, I go and ask. Right now, I'm not quite sure how to interpret a CT finding on a patient. So I walked in the neurosurgery t- ward myself, not because I want to do the work myself. I mean, it's extremely <laughs> far. But because I want to be able to learn from the experience. And I know that I've wow. given the rest of my four team members enough work to do. Yeah. So I don't anticipate someone to leave a patient with a hemoglobin of five to walk across to do it at neurosurgery when I was on that end of the world anyway. And I think it's there's such a hierarchy that's been developed that a consultant can't do a consult or that a registrar can't pull a blood gas because it's the intern's job. And so I think the responsibility is twofold. As seniors, we need to provide the guidance. As juniors, we need to welcome that guidance. And each person or each team needs to know when they come in tomorrow, you're progressing together as the team. When you come in on Wednesday, you're progressing together as a team. It's not a matter of everyone is pulling in their own direction and being lost in the process. And so I think that that is extremely important. That you, as a junior doctor, are entitled to the most current research outcomes, to the most current guidelines, protocols. You are supposed to know how to interpret it. You are supposed to know how to implement it. Anything around that that doesn't make sense to you comes because you have examine the case and made an assessment and in your mind something still doesn't fit and that's where the intellectual discussion happens yeah. and that's what i enjoy from the students like you always hear students say i know this is a stupid question <laughs> and so i'd look at them and i'm like there is no such thing as a stupid question because if you're asking it it means you don't know and if you didn't know that anemia was a hemoglobin of five that for me is worrying because that means that somewhere along the line no one has taught it to you. Sure. So I do believe that no question is a stupid question. I do believe that every insecurity and query needs to be addressed. Because if we don't embrace our young doctors and if we don't embrace the questions, the theories, you know, the, the, the anecdotes that they have, you end up getting people who retract within themselves and then only opening protocol books and then following them incorrectly. And then you have this whole adverse outcome where the patient is compromised and someone asks you, but why did you do that? And they turn around and say, but it's in my book. And then someone else turns around and say, but that's what we did in 2010. It's now 2022. But the person says, that's the information I have. So we really have a huge responsibility to make sure that every generation is equipped with the relevant information to make the best decisions for their patients. And I, I dare say that you've done a fair share of, of playing your part in guidelines and educating people, appearing on podcasts and giving lectures and academic meetings. And so thank you for your role in, in shaping junior doctors, even just by making your time available on a Friday afternoon for this interview. Um, if somebody was interested in critical care, 
whether it be maternal critical care or critical care in general, what avenues are there to study and, and to specialize in critical care in South Africa? I believe that there are various ways to arrive there. So what are some of the paths, uh, what are some of the paths that you feel particularly are the best way to equip oneself, the best training that one can get? Um, how can one go about that? So critical care taught in South Africa is not for a specific discipline. It's general. So as much as I can look after a preeclamptic patient, I can look after a patient with a gunshot abdomen, mm. or I can look after someone who's got a ischemic limb. Yeah, so you're a dual specialist. You're an obstetrician as well so as a critical as a, care yes. physician. So yes. it's actually not even a subspeciality of obstetrics. It's a speciality on its own. Yes. Uh, but to be able to get there, I think you do need baselines. So the College of Medicine of South Africa offers critical care subspeciality training to anyone who has qualified as an anaesthetist. Okay. So that's one avenue. You can do it via the physician route. Mm -hmm. So if you've done internal medicine, mm -hmm. you can do it via the emergency medicine route. So that's the only subspeciality at the moment from an emergency medicine perspective point of view. And then obstetrics and gynecology was also afforded the opportunity to study. Oh, wow. And you can do it via general surgery. So I have quite so a that's few- five. Five lanes. Yeah, well, you I mean, if you look through. at it, it's almost every speciality, yeah. right? It's medicine, yeah. it's surgery, it's ONG, and then under your physicians, you've got the emergency medicine, and under surgery, you've got anaesthetists. Was it always that way, or was there an intentional, concerted effort? Like, let's say they wanted to prioritize mother's health, maternal health. No, and no. So I don't think critical care was ever uh, uh, seen as a optimization of maternal health. Okay. I think it was just offered across each of the specialities. Because, like you for say, all Correct. kinds of patients. But I think in recent years, everyone has become more aware that the obstetric population doesn't get into ICU so and it's not because they're not good candidates in fact obstetric patients or pregnant women are the most resilient to get into ICU because if you can acutely manage if you can acutely diagnose timelessly the problem and try and reverse it as quickly as possible mm -hmm. nine and a half out of ten times that pregnancy together with the mother and the baby will survive Wow. It's the delays where the problem is. I mean, you've seen it when you were in ONG. We got patients who were in peripheral hospitals or in clinics for days before they were referred to us. But it's that patient where you pick up timelessly that there is a concern that you can act. And that's why patients are admitted in antenatal ward. So you mm. can foresee who's going to get a pulmonary edema, who's going to end up with an abruptio, etc., etc., to intervene in those cases. So I think if you're a junior doctor and you're interested in critical care, it's still a long way to go yes. because you do need to do a speciality and from the speciality then subspecialize wow. in critical care. If you enjoy that form of uh, medicine, then what I would suggest is I think the DIPEC is something that's excellent to do. That's a diploma in emergency medicine. I think that courses like basic as well as advanced uh, life support is important because we do a lot of uh, acute resuscitation in critical care. And the one thing that I've really been trying to do, but there's such a huge waiting list, which I would still really love to, is the trauma uh, life support uh, ATLS. ATLS. So I think if you're interested, I think, I think for anyone, it's very good to go through each of those, no matter where your path takes you, even if you end up in dermatology 
or in you know uh, ophthalmology you still gain so many different skills along the way and i don't think there's any wrong answer to learn anything yeah you know i know of people who are athletes i recently learned that one of the medical officers is so passionate about swimming and when i start looking at what people do outside of medicine you actually see how the skills they've attained in their hobbies in their other interests actually pull through you know from a medicine perspective point of view and so it's very interesting and i don't think you'll go wrong with exposing yourself to as much uh, skill training uh, you know as possible my um so when i went to texas and uh, i was Gosh, given is the, there any way you haven't trained <laughs> <laughs> when i was uh, afforded the the fellowship to go and uh, basically visit the obstetric critical care unit there um that's how this whole professorship mm. and promotions and what have you uh, escalated um i was the only person that they had heard of that had studied critical care to the intensity i had and it was excellent because i managed to walk around with the pulmonology team i got to see things and resources that we don't have readily available in in state or in the public sector things like evds lvds left ventricular assist devices you know the ecmos the extracorporeal um circuit so it was really lovely but the one thing that i think i came away with that i'm so excited to do was that i was nominated there to participate or to train in the obstetric critical care symposium okay. so that essentially is where they create skills training and so they've got these real life uh simulation dummies that can have an eclamptic seizure <laughs> that can give birth to a baby that can essentially have uh you know bleed or have an abrupt show wow. and so i'm invited i was invited during covid but we couldn't travel and so in november of this year i'm going to teach in arizona Sizing. for that oh, I, i'm so thrilled and the thing is as much as i i would love to go to see how it's done it's something i really want to create for us in south africa so you know that the training and the empowerment and the skills i'm very passionate about teaching i love being clinically involved but i really love working with junior minds to be able to to give them that confidence to say but you did that you know you made the difference yeah. even if it was a student that's running with the gas for me yeah. she didn't bring it to me i didn't know i needed to replace calcium so the fact that you're a team member and and you you realize the urgency or the diligence with helping the team to make the better outcome for the patient for me is important i think in general we could be a little bit more encouraging of of one another uh, in in medicine that doesn't matter what level you're at that everyone needs to hear kind words every day so little no, things like that absolutely you know? but it's simple things like you know the thank yous the pleases you know that the smile like i hate wearing a mask because <laughs> you can't ever smile at someone but it does help when i'm very angry so at least uh, <laughs> i have my mask no on no one can see you biting no one can see me um but essentially <laughs> i i remember the one day and i had, i i couldn't believe it in myself that i had said it and we had just dealt with a very uh, difficult maternal death and we were discussing it in mnm and one of my registrar registrars was like but prof you know we keep getting blamed for doing things incorrectly and there was a a surgery registrar that spoke to her very poorly and you know she said something to the effect that yeah but you know you gynees just always are cutting the ureters or always injuring the bowel and she says you know we really tried our best for this patient and i looked at her and i said you know i'm the mother of this house and i don't know why i said it but i realized at that point that i needed to embrace the people i work with mm-hmm. that they needed to be comforted to know that i could not look after someone else's child 
but in my household you will not perform like that and i you know i i really uh, do believe that everyone's behavior is a reflection of themselves the fact that my registrar felt the way she did was not because she's incompetent it was because someone made her feel like that mm. which means that that person needs to take responsibility for their behavior mm. and so i always go back to say that everyone's behavior is a reflection on themselves very good prof you know so yeah. i'm not a person that is hot headed i don't think you've ever heard me in a fight because i don't engage right i will stand my ground point and if i know this is not going to go anywhere it's just going to get the two of us extremely upset for no reason but isn't it also that's so on one hand it's maturity and it's it's experience and it's wisdom but it's also it's an eq thing right yeah like to just to just let somebody explode and you don't rise to their level you're just like okay be a volcano it's fine you know, i'll watch yeah, <laughs> but when, when you've exploded and you want to talk about this you know my mother, <laughs> you know but the thing is there's just so many egos there's so many heightened senses sure. people are exhausted i mean if you don't sleep for two or three nights in a row you're irritable yeah we all have children yeah. we know how mad they get when they don't sleep but we're also human You know, so I, I thought you were going to say there's some six foot children walking around the hospital. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, I do believe that whoever's here is here in the best interest. You know, of I course. mean, when I used to do uh, medical students and I used to go around everyone, I used to do it for the Gem 3s and the Gem 4s. I think that's the fourth years. Fifth and sixth, yeah. Fifth years and sixth years. The, the last so two years. So the last years, I used to take them for gynae tuts and the babies before them, I used to take them for obstetric tuts. And I used to go through every single person. Tell me your name and tell me why you studied medicine. Sure. And I said, remember that. Everyone was like, you know, they're so young and they're so hopeful and they're so ambitious. And they're like, I want to help people. Don't stop believing that. Yeah. Because the moment you stop believing why you started medicine, everything crashes around you. And I mean, I try and engage with my team all the time because, I mean... We work around with people who have egos. We work around with people who don't want to do the work. Seniors who do not want to supervise. People who leave to go to private practices. That is beyond my control. But the juniors get affected because who is there to hold their hand and take them through something if they haven't done it the first time? And so I've told you on multiple occasions, in your heart, if you knew you did the best, but you didn't have your surroundings to support you, find comfort in that because you wanted what was best for the patient you couldn't go and drag your consultant out of their private practice you couldn't go and drag your consultant to answer their phone if they didn't hmm. but you made all the arrangements to know what you needed to optimize your management plan and that has to count so i think a lot of the time people feel defeated but no one concentrates on how hard they worked to make it happen And I mean I work with the maternal deaths which I can tell you is extremely depressing. Sure. I really work hard, but I know now where to be able to draw a boundary to say I knew what I needed. I engaged with the correct people to make them aware of what I needed to optimize my management plan. And it stops there. Because I would get the support or would not get the support or everyone would say sure we want to help you but in our resource limited setting we can't afford that to you hmm. i mean we've built eight bedded icu for obstetric patients which i cannot get functioning because i do not have the staff to run it and at the same oh. token i'm the only individual in this department that can run an icu and if i have to look at it in terms of expanding myself 
it's not possible. So it's not possible to be here every minute of every day. Of course, yeah. To manage high tech patients because I am going to make a mistake. So if I can ask you on that, Prof, like you say, you can't get staff for that. So in this setting, let's say we talk about the Charlotte McPaker Hospital, uh, a state hospital, would an ICU, a maternal ICU, would that be run with critical care registrars? So people who've done Obzingani and they're now doing critical care in Obzingani, or people who have done other specialties and they want to do critical care, would it be registrars or would you need to have people who already have that critical care qualification? So I think it's a mix of both. So I think the support needs to come globally, but I'm okay. not talking about doctors. Okay. In order for you to run an ICU efficiently, you need ICU nurses. You need ICU trained nurses. And that's and a rarity, and I do understand there's many constraints, you know, in terms of human resources, but that's where the limitation is. And is that uh, limitation in state and in private? Or I think is it? it is. Okay. I think there are very few people who are trained, and I think financially to try and employ these people to, to give off their sure. services is also a limitation. Whilst I understand that, I don't think it's impossible, but we will keep motivating. Are ICU nurses um, or people who are qualified in South Africa, are they taking their skills abroad? I know some nurses are going to Dubai and working on contract for two years. Is it, is it a thing that... I'm not ICU quite sure. Okay. I'm not quite sure why. I think, but that happens with, I think, anyone yeah, in any Yeah, any skill, field. any profession, yeah. If you have an opportunity to go away for two or three years, financially, you know, equip yourself, get the experience, get to visit a bit. I don't see yeah. anything wrong with Let that. Let the exchange rate work in your favor so, for a bit. Absolutely. Yeah. And the thing is, I think a lot of people don't realize that uh, life is fluid. You know, you've got to do what's in the best interest that, yeah. of yourself, what's in the best interest of your family. If you decide you want to take, you know, go to Canada and see what life is like, and after six months you decide, you know, it really wasn't working out, then you come back home. I love what you're saying about um, life is not, you know, this hard and fast, uh, if I can call it like a tightrope that you need to walk on, and if you fall off either way, you're done for. I love that you're, um, you're giving people the grace and giving them opportunity to make decisions that if they find out six months down the line, oh, I don't, I don't need to try this road anymore, I'm going to turn back, that that's not necessarily a failure. And I'm not implying in any sense that any of the decisions or any of the places you've moved have been, um, have been failures. But I do want to take you back to that locum time where you said you took some time to kind of suss what you wanted to do in medicine. What was it about that locum time that helped you to clarify things for yourself? Was it working with different patients? Was it having more time? Was it having less time? <laughs> what was it that made you say, I actually have some clarity of thought here? I think for me it was, I wanted to rest. Um, and I, I wasn't convinced in terms of going into a speciality that soon. I loved doing medicine. Um, it was great when we all graduated. I loved my internship. I loved my community service. And um, so my parents live in KZN but uh, my fiance at the time was in Johannesburg. And so I knew I'd have to come back to Johannesburg. But at that point, I wasn't settled on whether I wanted to get straight into any form of, I didn't even think about getting into, you know, doing a medical office stint or applying for a reg post. It was just, it kind of happened in the sense that I would like to go overseas. So I started working towards that. I wrote plebs for the UK. I started looking at Ireland. And it, it was just enjoyable. Um, yeah. 
And I think what had happened was when I was finishing, I was outsourced by a few people in terms of locum. And I said, okay, let me go see what it was about. It was really nice money. <laughs> you know, I mean, you just finished ComServe. You weren't really earning that much. And now suddenly you're earning in private practice. And back then you didn't have to do family medicine. You could be a GP straight out of community service. Um, and it was really nice. I worked with a different, you know, different array of people. I did, uh, I locumed for a, a GP who was here in Hillbrow. So I worked with different calibers of people. I loved that, you know, the gogos would come in and have their blood pressure wanted to be taken. Then there'd be kids that I'd have to like, you know, help in terms of oh. upper respiratory tract infections, but you'd need to gain their trust. So I did enjoy, I'm, I'm a really people's person until I realized, I think in the last few years, that I'm actually an introvert. Oh, wow. Which is very I strange. Say. Yeah, no, neither would I, but I love my alone time. Um, and I enjoyed working with them. And so I just continued until I think I didn't have very big expectations, which is why I led a very low risk, low stressful life. And it was at this point in the interview that I learned the importance of having spare batteries at all times as my microphone batteries decided to cut out. Thanks so much to Professor Bura for her time and wonderful candor with the audience on this episode of the podcast. I'd like to think this is just part one of the interview and we may be able to get her back on soon. If you know of a consultant or senior registrar in a specialty that you would like to have featured on the Dr. Coffee podcast, please get in touch. The podcast's email address is drcoffeeza at gmail.com. That's drcoffeeza with no punctuation marks. We're also on Instagram and YouTube with the username at drcoffeeza. If you've got anything else on your mind, such as a request for additional topics, further information on how to engage with our guests, feedback on the show, or anything else, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Please consider sharing this episode with fellow junior doctors and medical students in your world who you think would benefit from the content and enjoy it. Thank you so much for your support.